Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. With me, Gretchen and Bill. Welcome. Happy New Year. Hello. Hi. Hopefully, Happy New Year. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Hello. <laughs> You're supposed to be excited. We've got a whole new year ahead of us that couldn't be worse than last year. So there you go. Um, <laughs> I'm still tired from celebrating, okay? Yeah, we actually, uh, Bill, uh, Gretchen and I, it's the first time I've gone and done anything for New Year's since I moved out of Reno. So we had a time and we ended up playing D&D most of the evening. So that was kind of fun. That's good. So, yeah. But anyway, all right, so we've got a new season ahead of us here and just getting things started again. And for anybody that doesn't know, we are now on in Seattle as of last November. Okay, KOL up there, the answer is Seattle. So if you are in that area and want to listen on the air, you can do so. And of course, the podcast is available. Now, uh, we air right now at 2 o'clock on Saturday in Seattle, but the podcast still doesn't post until 6 because we do have to wait until we air on all the stations we're on before that can go live. So. Just so you know, if you want to get the podcast in Seattle, it's not right after the show like it is in Portland. You do have to wait a couple of hours, but it's out there. Userfriendly.show is where you go for all of that or to either of the radio station's websites, which is The Answer Seattle or TheAnswerPortland.com, depending on which one you want. All right. So let's go ahead and get through the news. Today, we're going to be doing a Q&A in the second segment. And we've got a number of questions that have come in, so we've been wanting to do this. That would be a great way to kick off the year. And uh, our guest for this week got moved to next week because the power grid didn't work, and then the internet didn't work. So it's been one of those type of situations. So we'll have that coming up for you. What do we have in the news this week? Mickey Mouse enters public domain. So as much as Disney has tried and succeeded (laughs) to extend copyright law forever, Uh, We are finally to the point that they can't push it out anymore, which I believe is right now 95 years. And that means that the original Mickey Mouse is actually now part of the public domain. So this is something that's kind of interesting to see that coming. And we're going to have a lot of different things hitting, you know, as we start to move ahead, because a lot of these different franchises and art forms are approaching that period now. It's weird to think it's been around that long. So. Yeah. Uh, one of our questions that came in on, our, on some of the other superheroes, which we'll be talking about next segment, but uh, we're going to be seeing some dates here. Now, what does that mean? Well, I am not a copyright lawyer, so I can't speak to it from that standpoint, but I do pretty much guarantee you that if anybody goes and starts using Mickey Mouse without licensing from Disney, you will still get a phone call from somebody. Because there's <laughs> some way that they're going to be able to protect that. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see where that ends up going. But yes. Mickey Mouse is now part of the public domain. Bomb washes up on Northern California beach following the storms. Okay, so eh, kind of a technology thing, I guess. Uh, This was an old bomb. It uh, looked quite old. The information on it didn't talk about exactly when it was made, but it was obviously a while ago. And just one of these kind of interesting things, if you are walking up the coast after a storm and see something that looks like a bomb, probably stay away from it. <laughs> yeah, you know. that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and, you know, between the wars and now all of the crap that's going on with the monsters invading Ukraine and everything in the Middle East, there's stuff like this all over the place. And uh, in the ocean, I know that uh, 
when they do mining and some of these other things, they're tied in with a chain. So they're under the water, or at least that's the way it was done in the World War II era, probably still pretty this similar This one now. doesn't look like a, a, a floaty bomb. It yeah, that, like... I was thinking that from the picture too, but <laughs> the information is it looks more like a torpedo. Yeah. So, or something that uh, was dropped. Just still on the on the side of safety. If you see a torpedo sitting on the beach after a storm, or really at any time, uh, probably don't approach it, and you know get a hold of the appropriate authorities because uh, these type of things happen. But where I was going with that is the stuff that's held underwater or ships that have sunk or whatever. Uh, over time, the chains rot, the mountings rot, all that kind of stuff. So you do have them surface. And they can be very dangerous. This one I know was inert when they found it, but still, it's just something to be aware of and avoid bombs on both the beaches and the movie theaters lately. More on that later. What is our next item? <laughs> Google password resets. Not enough to stop these info-stealing malware streams. Oh, how does that sound to you? It sounds like a bummer to me. Yeah. <laughs> so right. what exactly does that all mean? What's a okay. info stealing malware strain? Yeah, it's it means there's a problem. So there's malware, okay, uh, which we've talked about many times, and this malware right. in this particular situation compromised compromised uh, some things to deal with Google passwords, and I can get into all the technicals on that, but we don't have time as to what actually happened. But Nevertheless, one of the things they say is, okay, go ahead and change your password when this happens and it will help secure things. A good idea. And even with this, still a good idea. However, there is another part of this that you don't necessarily see and most computer users probably don't even know about. And that's that once you log on, and it's not just Google, this works for in modern age, most, many, certainly different sites that use passwords to get into them. And what it does is once you enter your password, it goes, okay, you've entered the correct password and it creates a key file. And these key files are exchanged um, between your browser and the server and that type of a thing. So what has happened here with the malware that they're talking about is it's actually been able to also attack those keys. So what happens is when you change your password, if you don't log out, it's still, you're authenticated and logged in and the malware can get to that. So changing the password doesn't necessarily completely secure the account. So the best you can do right now on this is, and this is good advice for really any Google user, which is pretty much all of us here, is to change your password. Make sure you, if you don't, you have your multi-factor authentication set up. Now we require it for user-friendly for our people, but that may or may not be the case for everybody. It's a good idea to do it. And the way that Google has that set up is it's a lot easier than some. You have to use your phone or other authentication device once in a while, but it doesn't make you do it every time. So you don't get stuck with that. But set it up. And then there's a thing on the bottom right-hand screen when you're looking at your Google that says in use in other locations. If it's more than just one, you want to click on that and then click on log out at all other locations. So if you're logged in from somewhere else or someone else says it will kick them out. Then log off of your account and then log back on. Log on, log off. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wasn't that a car wash commercial at one time? The Swiffer, Swoofer, something? Anyway. Uh, so, but um, yes, I know it's the new year and I know that everybody has, you know, nothing better to do than all of that. But it is important because the other thing of it is too, is you look at services like Gmail and Facebook and Apple and some of these other things that are not only used to authenticate 
for that service, but you use them to get on the other services as well. So if one's compromised, it can affect everything else where you've used that to authenticate on the other services. So it's just a good idea to do that, get in there. And again, the multi-factor authentication is a bit of a pain, but it is something that's definitely recommended. And right now, the reality is, is a username password combination, just that kind of technology is not secure and hasn't been in a while. And they're trying to come up with other things to replace it. But one of the problems has been, how do you do that where it isn't super inconvenient? And the second thing is there's a great many of us that don't want to have to have our phone with us for everything. So using the phone as the multi-factor authentication, if you don't have your phone, you're locked out anyway, or if your phone number changes or something like that. So, you know, this is something that's still kind of being fixed, and there really isn't a perfect solution to this yet. But for right now, it's recommended if you're a Gmail user, go ahead and change your password, make sure you're logged out of all other locations, and then log out yourself and log back in. Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, uh, U.S. lender exposes 14 million social security numbers, bank account numbers, and other sensitive information in a massive data breach. So. This is uh, interesting, and this is one where I can talk about this from a personal experience more than just you know simply reporting the news, as it were. And a little bit of uh, just my own background on this situation is um, I have a mortgage, and it was originally through Umqua Bank. And uh, Umqua Bank isn't uh, been my favorite bank in the world, but it's where the mortgage was, so that's all fine and well. And uh, late last year, about third quarter, they sold uh, my loan to the company that had this happen called Mr. Cooper. And Mr. Cooper is a very large, one of the biggest, I think, home lending and finance and all that kind of stuff that deals with these type of things. And I remember when this happened because when the transfer went in, I needed to get on and, you know, reset payments and all the normal stuff you do in these type of situations. And the website came back, well, everything's locked out. You can't log on right now and don't bother calling us because our people can't get to your information either. And if you owe us money, you won't be charged any late fees. And that's basically what it said. I mean, they had a prettier oh, way geez. of presenting it, but that's where it was at. You could get to the public part of the website, but that was it. Everything else was locked off. And uh, presumably, if you had had an account with them previously and had things like auto pay and stuff set up, it all of that went away. And then it came out a little bit later, um, like in the last two weeks, that their entire system basically got downloaded. So 14 million social security numbers, bank account numbers, and other sensitive information, which is home addresses, um, various uh, you know birth dates, all of these different type of things that are used to authenticate, were got out there. Now, I also know that there's a class action lawsuit pending right now. I was contacted about that. The statement being is that Mr. Cooper didn't do enough to secure all of this. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know yet. I will be watching that because a lot of people use this company. And then the other thing I found out too, is I guess there's some white label stuff where there's um, some lending debt services that handle house payments and all that kind of stuff that might be under a different name, but actually still use Mr. Cooper, one of their subsidiaries to operate. So there's going to be some stuff that's going to come out from there too. Question that comes out in these type of things is what can you do about it? Well, not a lot. And unfortunately, with this type of information, somebody can take your social security number and birth date and the other stuff that would normally be used to authenticate you and 
start opening credit accounts and you know all of that kind of thing. So really what it comes down to is freeze your credit with the bureaus, Experian, Equifax, and uh, TransUnion. Uh, if they, by the way, uh, footnote on that too, and this is a question that's come in when we've talked about that, it is free to do. And if you get into any kind of a situation on any of those sites, because they do try to sell you things, you can lock your credit and unlock your credit for free. That's the rule. If you want to enroll in credit monitoring or something like that, then they can charge you for that. But I know this is confusing and it's done that way on purpose. As a, for example, um, it's Experian that I have a uh, data, um, credit monitoring with. And Experian, if you might remember a few years ago, had the biggest hack of all time when they got everybody that was in that agency. So the monitoring is included. Now, when you go on there, it says your credit is unfrozen. And if you click on it, they want to charge you a monthly fee to freeze it. But they're not talking about freezing your credit report. They're talking about some other thing they call freezing that is has a cost to it. So it's just important to know that it is free to freeze and unfreeze your credit. They can't charge you for that either. So if you're going to go legitimately buy a car or house credit card or something like that, you can unfreeze it. And you usually set a time frame. So you talk to your lender and say, okay, I'm going to unfreeze it for one day or on the credit. And it automatically locks down again. So that's the best thing you can do right now with this kind of stuff. Use credit monitoring. And the other thing is watch your financial accounts. So if something weird happens, and a lot of these bad actors aren't going for draining your bank account anymore. I mean, that certainly still happens. But it's the idea of trying to open credit accounts in your name that you don't know anything about and then using them. And the one side of that is the inconvenience because that can ruin your credit and obviously create debt. And it takes a lot of hassle to get that all resolved. And plus, even when something's on your credit report, it can't be removed, even if it's fraud like that without you know standing on your head and going through a massive process, if it's even possible to do at all. But the other thing they're using is things like terrorist laundering money. So they'll open an account with your identity and use that to move money around because it looks safe. You're a you know, US citizen or somebody that has a right to be here and has legal means to have a bank account. And then it goes through that kind of a thing. And there have been some situations where the uh, innocent people will know nothing about this and have been arrested. And, you know, usually um, they're able to work through it, but it's still that process is unpleasant on things like international terrorism charges. So because the money laundering goes back to them. So yeah. in any event, that right now is kind of the best you can do. So changing your passwords and all of that kind of stuff, like we just talked about with Google email, is a good idea. But the other thing, too, is you have to also look at this from a standpoint of what's reasonable. And again, something we've talked about in the past is that most people now have more than 90 online accounts. And I think that number hit 100 this year on the average. And while it's nice to say, well, we're going to have a different password on each account and all of this kind of stuff, it's not particularly feasible because you'd end up having to have a massive book, which I think some of us already do. I know, Gretchen, you have something like that. And still, it is, you're not going to really be able to have and maintain 100 different passwords. So what I do is I have different passwords for some of the more critical stuff, financial accounts. So my password for each bank I, credit card I use, that is different, uh, and medical records. And then the other stuff I divide into different things so that I'll have one password that's maybe 20 different accounts that aren't as critical. So that way, if something does get compromised on one, you don't have to reset all of them. and it also still gives you kind of a ability to have a difference between some of them 
but not have to actually maintain a different one for each of them. Now, that's not the advice that is by the book. And I say that straight out because it's still, you should have a separate password or, you know, a lock key or something of that nature for each account. It's just, there's the, what would be perfect world way to do it. Then there's the real world. And the real world says you can't really do that. I don't know. Have you guys ever had a problem with uh, your passwords being stolen or data breach or anything like that? A couple of times. Not that I know of. And you're lucky. (laughs) I'm weird. I'm one of the weird people who make sure that I have a different password for everything. So, and, and then again, I don't really do much of anything. You know what I mean? So maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, that's part. But the thing of it is, you still do have financial accounts. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all do. So. Yeah. Uh, Bill, have you had problem? I know you said you've had this happen sometimes. Have you had any major? Uh, what do you have you done to recover from it, or have you been able to? Uh, most of it was lower stuff. So I just changed my passwords and, you know, I've never had any problems since. Um, the other one was a massive breach of information on a government level. Um, I think remember probably about a decade or so ago happened, but yeah, that was just cause I threw in a resume and job application and that one got me. So yeah, I've had had, yeah, uh, these- credit monitoring and stuff ever since. Yeah, that's the whole thing of it, because credit monitoring... No, Gretchen, go ahead. Yeah, I get kind of spooked by some of the job applications, to tell you the truth. Yeah. So job applications are an issue, too, because they are using that as a way to get personal information, and especially someone that is looking for a job. If you're looking for a job, a lot of times you're needing to get a job. I mean, that's why you're Mm -hmm. looking for it, right? So you're going to respond to a lot easier in a lot of cases to someone, whereas you might not with other things. So, oh, we saw your resume on, you know, Indeed, Monster, whatever. And, you know, those kind of sites are secured to some extent, but the idea is to get your resume out. So it's not like it's locked down somewhere and people can get to it if they're an employer and have gotten clearance to do so. So you get an email back and saying, hey, uh, you know, we've got this position for you. Can you send us more information or can we do a phone interview? You have no idea who you're talking to, you know, and we'll use that as a way to get private information. And uh, so it's another thing to definitely be careful about. If something doesn't seem right, you definitely want to question it. And it's a lot harder in the work world because a lot of times you don't necessarily know who the employer is initially either. Yeah. So it's not like you can say, oh, you're uh, calling from Amazon IT and want to hire me. Great. Let me call you back at a phone number I find online. If you can do that, great. But that isn't always the case. So it's just one of the things to be very careful in that type of thing. Now, employers should not ask you for things like social security numbers until after you're hired. That is normally part of the onboarding process. So if you get asked for that kind of information, uh, certainly a date of birth is another thing. They're not allowed to ask that uh, in an interview. So if you're asked for that kind of personal information, that is a giant red flag. And um you know, and certainly don't include that on a resume, which by the way, as an employer, I've seen, I've actually had resumes come in where it includes date of birth and, uh, and uh, social security number, and even things like race identifiers. And all of this is not relevant to getting a job. It's illegal to ask for in a lot of cases. And How old just- are, are the people that are sending these things? Because in the old days that uh, my social security number used to be um, everybody who went to the university I went. It was your ID. 
Yeah. Your social yeah. security number was your student ID. You know, it was like crazy. So they had to get and rid of all of that. You know, <laughs> it was the same thing um, for uh, Medicare. It was uh-huh. your social security number was your Medicare ID number for a long time. Yeah. They just changed that about two years ago. And, uh, you know, so you're still seeing that kind of thing. And yeah, it's, yeah. uh, it's definitely, definitely a case as far as how old people are. Well, I can look at those resumes and tell you exactly because they're data birthers on some of them. Um, but I, I, there, I don't remember. I, you know, I'd have to look to have exact information on that. And it's because it's happened over the space of a couple of years. Yeah. But the bottom line of it is, is I don't think it was limited. It wasn't just like, you know, seniors or young people or something. It was kind of across the spectrum where they would do that. Okay. And, um, you know, some stuff that's very, very interesting. And in some cases, if you do that, you probably won't get considered because the employer is going to be concerned that they have information that you potentially could later sue them for having. So, you know, wow. it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely one of those things. So it's just be careful out there. And speaking of which, what is our next news item? Mm, is that me? or I, I, I don't know. Is that you? Did you get hacked? Yes, I got hacked. <laughs> Looks like it is me um steam game mod delivered malware on christmas day wasn't that a nice gift yeah nice nice little you know christmas present going on there right so yeah and this is again we've talked about some of the stuff that's gone out with uh updates and um if they can if the bad guys can get into the system and then send the updates out to everybody that has it installed that is a big problem that's created some of the problems we've had in the past this particular game is one that I actually haven't heard of. Billy, maybe you have Slay the Spire Downfall. Oh. Yeah, I've heard of it. So, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a good game or not, but um, what happened is, is there was an update and, that was sent out on um, Christmas. It was a fan-made mod expansion pack um, for Downfall called Slay the Spire. Okay, so the name of the game's Downfall. The expansion is slay the spire and can see on time like i said i've never heard of this game but anyway um so what happened is is when this expansion pack went out that was free and all of that and you installed it you ended up with malware so you know so again (laughs) nice gift and um so anyway so they posted an update and um if players saw unity pop up over christmas they need to change their passwords especially if you're a user on Steam that doesn't have two-factor authentication. And um, any account that's set up for mobile two-factor authentication should be immune. So anyway, it's just to keep your eye on things and that type of stuff. So yes, as you said, I think, Gretchen, earlier, there's a lot of hacks going on. Yeah. And uh, they're definitely out there, and I don't think it's going to get any better anytime soon. At some point, we're going to have to replace usernames and passwords. I mean, it really is an obsolete technology. But it's just the better ways to do it are a lot more complicated. So it just hasn't happened yet. So, all right. So uh, next section of the show, we're going to be doing a Q&A. We've had a number of questions come in. So stay tuned for that. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Check out our website, userfriendly.show. 
That's your one-stop place for all of our social media, past shows, past seasons, archives, articles. Someday we'll start writing articles again. But it's all out there, user-friendly dot show. So we've had a lot of questions come in recently and over the past uh, couple of months since we did our last Q&A. So we thought we'd dive into some of these on our first episode back this year and uh, see if we can come up with some answers for you. So what are our questions? What do we have? When you chat, is it really a live agent? Okay, so I talked to the listener that submitted this, and the specifics of this are as a chat, what they're talking about is if you go to a website and you are chatting, like type chatting with somebody, not talking to them on the phone or through some other means, and is the agent really live? So interesting question with AI and all the different stuff that's going on. It's a it's a valid question. So did a little checking on this, and the answer to this question is, well, maybe. Uh, yeah. It depends on the situation. And in some cases, the AIs are working so well that you really don't know the difference. In most cases with larger organizations, when you start a chat, you will be talking to an AI. And the process that they're going through there is to try to figure out what it is that you need and what department you would actually talk to and if there's any way they can make it so you don't actually have to talk to somebody. That seems to be where all that starts and obtaining information and all that kind of thing. And then if you can get through the process and you get to a live agent, if it says it's live, it usually is. So as a, for example, Amazon, if you ever have needed help on Amazon, it is possible to chat with a real person. It just requires a lot of patience and knowing how to get through a maze. And you click on help and then it'll run you through a bunch of stuff. And then you select the item that you want help with or the topic or that type of thing. And if you do that, most times it will give you an answer and that's the end of it. If you go through the right process, it you have an option that says, my answer is not here. I need more help. Or sometimes it just says, I need additional help. You click on that and then you can get to a live agent. That's just one example of this type of thing. So when you chat, is it really a live agent as we go into the brave new world? Not always. And decent question. When do Superman and Batman enter the public domain? All right. So we talked a little bit earlier about Mickey Mouse um, entering the public domain this year. And the question of this is one that is, well, what about the other characters? And so on, you know, and that type of a thing. So Superman was first depicted in action comics. In, let's see, what was it, 1929, I think, anyway. It, it enters the public domain in 2034. That number I know. Somebody would, might have to correct me on the date that it actually comes in. So that is Superman, and then Batman was a little bit later, so it'll enter the public domain a little bit later. So the soonest we're seeing on this would be 2034. So that's, what, 10 years from now? Yeah. Which, when you really think about it, isn't that far away? No, it's not. <laughs> it's really not. So uh, what is Oya? Oya, okay. And uh, this is something we actually can talk about on the family hour because that term has a little bit of multiple connotations with it. And uh, this question came in and they had a device called an Ouya and I had never heard of it. So I started doing a little bit of poking around. It's a video game console. Oh. And it was on the market for about three years. And yeah. it looks like it came out originally in 2012. Um, it was a Kickstarter. The unit started to ship to the backers in 2013, and then it was released to the general public in, 20, in June of that year. So March was the backers. June was when you could just go buy it. 
And out of the box, it supported media apps such as Twitch, uh, something called the Cody Media Center, and it was running on a modified version of Android Jelly Bean. One of the things in the marketing of this device was that it was something for you to hack. So rooting was openly encouraged, did not void the warranty, that kind of a thing. And even the console's hardware design allowed it to be easily opened up, which you could do with just a standard screwdriver. And if you wanted to mod it and that kind of a thing, you could do. And one of the big things about this system that was a big deal, there was a lot of hype when this came out, apparently. I was looking at some of the commercials and stuff. It was ultimately a commercial failure. But there was a lot of hype to it because it was this open source aspect. They initially said that all games on this were required to have free to play. Well, the only, and this is where some of this started to break down because while all the games had to have free to play, that could be a trial. It didn't mean that the game had to be free. So you were expecting one thing and weren't necessarily uh, going to get it. So that would, a free trial would qualify with that. Then you had purchasable upgrades levels, you know, microtransactions, all of that kind of stuff. The unit itself was very small, and it was a little cube type thing that weighed a couple of ounces. The one thing on it from just looking at the pictures is I think the controllers that came with it would have been painful. They're modeled like a PlayStation 4 controller, but the part where you hold them is extremely thick. So Mm -hmm. the handholds, it just doesn't seem like that would fit in your hand. And then everybody that has reviewed these, from what I can see, has said that there's actually a lag between the controller and the console, oh, uh, which kind of is a bad thing. <laughs> oh, I mean, can you talk to that? Would you have a problem with a lag on your controller? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, geez. Wouldn't that and, induce um, rage? <laughs> yes, yes. And it's uh, and then the other funny thing about it is the four fire buttons on a spell out OEA, the name of the product, but apparently they were all C's on the original version of the controller. So there wasn't a different letter on the buttons, which is a problem. Um, And then the other thing of it is, is they're very springy. When you push the fire buttons, apparently you can feel the spring go in and it doesn't always pop back out. So sometimes it gets stuck. And then the final complaint about it was, is if you need to change the batteries, there's no battery compartment. So you actually have to pry off the skin on the front to be able to get to the batteries inside, which are not rechargeable. They're standard double A's. So was so, this product really should wow. have been called, oh, no. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting thing. And I, and I thought it was something kind of fun to talk about it because when I looked at it, it was uh, interesting to see where they were going with all this because a lot of the big name games had signed on to this thing to be able to release software for it, you know. And mm-hmm. the Kickstarter campaign originally was going for 950000 and raised $8,596,475. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so at the time, it was the fifth highest earning uh, project on Kickstarter. And so there was a lot of uh, dealing going on with this. And the idea, again, free the games fund so that uh, you could do this. They even offered a thing for a while because they couldn't get the developers to sign on in the mass that they needed to. Although there were a lot of them out there that if you were to raise $50,000 for your game on Kickstarter, they would match it up to dollar to dollar to a lot more. I think it was 250000 And of course, that created a lot of people gaming the system. So they'd put in their own 50000 on Kickstarter to make it look like they raised it to get the company to put in more money. So, you know, interesting thing. The bottom line of it, though, is, again, from reading the information on this, for what it was outside of the controller, it actually did work reasonably well. Um, it had an Android store that you could go to get things on and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so it certainly wasn't like the game systems we have now. 
but uh, you had a gigabyte of RAM, which in that period wasn't great, but it wasn't really bad. Uh, HDMI 1080p video output, uh, stereoscopic 3D support. You know, so all that kind of stuff was out there. Two-channel audio, which, you know, that's kind of not great, but it was there. Uh, sound generator, like we'd expect now. And again, it ran on Android, so it was pretty open source as far as all of that kind of thing went. So, you know, as far as what it was for 100 bucks, it wasn't terrible for the cost. But the thing of it is, is most gamers want value, but not necessarily cheap, if that makes sense. And um, so you want something to work. But um, you don't necessarily want something that's so cheap that it doesn't completely work properly. So this was on the market for about three years. Uh, then they stopped production of it just because of some of the problems and the lack of support that was going on. And Razer bought the rights to the technology later. They didn't keep the hardware going, um, but they uh, did do some stuff with the software. So they kept the store up for a while. And now there's actually kind of a, a cult following to these. The store that was official is long gone. But there are people out there that host servers so that if you know how to mod your machine properly and update certain things, you can actually still go on and download apps and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it does work as a sort of set-top box because it's HDMI output and you can go online with it. And I've seen some mods where people have made wireless keyboards and things work with it. So, you know, it's actually, from that standpoint, kind of an interesting thing that was out there. It looks like about 2 million of these sold, or I'm sorry, 200,000 of these sold. From end to end, and uh, which is would be considered terrible by uh, you know any kind of uh, thing that mm -hmm. we use now on big systems, and plus they were up against the big guys like Sony and Nintendo and and Microsoft and so on, so you know that was a little bit of a of a problem from that standpoint. But yeah, interesting thing, game system probably one that most of us had never heard of. I hadn't, and uh, one that certainly kind of made its mark. The one thing that did seem to come out of this was the support for open source games. So that is one positive. Uh, things like Steam and a lot of the indie publishers that we have now not necessarily got their start with the system, but the ability to get their start was created in many ways because the system existed. That's cool. All right. Um, is there really a laser-based record player is the next question. So interesting uh question but a lot have asked it so i started to look into this and it kind of uh, i was thinking about this too because i just set a turntable i've have back up and you know i'm playing with vinyl a little bit again it's you know certainly not the standard it once was but it's kind of fun to deal with this so yeah good question are there a such thing as a laser-based record player in other words does it you know like a cd player where you don't have a stylus physically touching your record so therefore you wouldn't have the wear and tear conceivably and is this something that's available? Was it available? And the answer to that, believe it or not, is yes. But they are crazy expensive. You can still buy one. So the turntable, <laughs> uh, this per model is an ELPLT1XA, uh, has a list price or had a list price originally of $20,500 for a turntable. And then later they lowered the list price to $10,500. So you can save 10 grand. Okay, and this was in the early 2000s. So if you do this in an inflation calculator, you're talking even more in today's money. Yeah. And the way that it worked is it used two lasers to read the groove and three more to position the head. So you had to do all that because just a real quick explanation of it is a record is stereo. 
And it's actually the sides of the groove that are your left and right channel. That's how that works and how it records it. So to be able to pick that up with a laser, you would have to be able to deal with all of that. And then the additional lasers are the location on the record because the grooves aren't, if you look at them under like a microscope or something, um, or a macro lens is actually how you would do it. Um, the grooves aren't all the same. They aren't all in the same places. So the stylus follows the groove through the record. And with that, over time, they were able to do some unique things. There's actually a choose-your-own-adventure record that ends in a random spot every time you play it. Uh, you know, stuff like that, uh, that they use to make some games and different things. There's different versions of records that have tighter grooves to try to fit more time of music on them and all of that. There's things like Quadraphonic that uh, allowed for an early version of surround sound that was four channels. So you've got all kinds of different things, and to even be able to support some of that, and it doesn't support all of them. They had to do this with the other lasers. However, there are some other gotchus on top of that, too. And that is that it will not read clear or color records. So they made vinyl that was like a red record or clear records, that kind of thing. Uh, Most of them were black, but not all of them. And the other thing is it absolutely cannot deal with in any capacity records that have dust on them. So in addition to your turntable, they strongly recommend that you buy a record cleaner with a suggested retail price of 16 grand on top of the price of the turntable. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that being said, I will not be getting one of these. I'm going to stick with my regular turntable that works just fine. And uh, I was upset about a $60 stylus. I guess I won't complain about that anymore. Is it true that stores are going to stop selling physical media? So, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. The question, Gretchen, that you brought up is, are there still any stores selling physical media? They do still exist out there. Best Buy is one of them. And where this uh, comes from, this question actually comes from, is that because they're going to stop selling physical media this year. So CDs, DVDs, all that kind of stuff. But right now you can still get it out there now. That doesn't mean that you can't order physical media online. I mean, certainly sites like Amazon would still have it. And there's a number of other locations. Uh, You can still get physical media at Sam Goody. Now, the question you would ask me is, oh, does that still exist? Yeah. Because with all the malls going away and that kind of a thing, there actually still are two Sam Goodies. In fact, I believe one's here in Oregon by Bend. Um, I I guess right there next to the last Blockbuster. They're not that close together, but there is still stores (laughs) like that. Um, for our Reno market, there's recycled records. And of course that's, a um, used, you know, pre-owned type stuff, uh, for the most part. I don't know if recycled records still sells new stuff. I haven't been in there in a very long time, but, um, the big guys are no longer carrying it. So for the most part, if you wanted to get physical media, you would need to do it mail order or go to better option. In my opinion, the small mom and pop shop in your area, if you have one to be able to buy your stuff. and the reality is, in a lot of these places, you can find some very unique things, and it's not as expensive as it would be online, and plus, you're supporting local business. What kinds of physical media are still available? Yeah, along the line of this, we've had a lot of questions about physical media lately, which is, to me, kind of cool, because I, I it's kind of a hobbyist. I like looking into this stuff. And, you know, we've had a lot of different things over the years. and. So, you know, this is kind of a big question because a lot of stuff is still available that might not be produced anymore. So first physical media format was in 1805, believe it or not. Uh, The recording format for that was considered digital. 
Fanharmonicon. Okay, I know I'm not saying that right, but it was some device, uh, you know, in that point. And uh, again, digital uh, reproduction. Okay, I'd love to check that out. I might look into it some more because was that, that sounds a little bit. one of those wax things? Well, it almost would have had to have been. Again, I'm I'm not entirely sure. So, well, the the piano cylinder, uh, which came out in 1851, is another format. Mm -hmm. So that one's a lot later, you know. And and then your first phonograph, which was a tinfoil phonograph, was 1877. Then we get into more, um, you know, more of what we know about. There's music boxes. And then the round wax cylinder, which you may or may not have seen, you know, it's out there. And then... Finally, things like the Edaphone in the 1880s, you know, and then it moves into 78 RPM Records, which came out in 1897. So anyway, in any event, there's been a lot of different formats, some more obscure than others. There was one format for a while that recorded on wire, like just wire. Um, Really? Yeah, and was able to magnetize the wire, and uh, they were used primarily as dictation machines, and they worked. The only problem is if you roll the wire broke, because you were putting a lot of pressure on it, it became a real mess. Um, you know, so you had your downsides to that. And so as far as physical format that you can still get now, okay. Compact cassettes was kind of the king of physical media for a very long time. They no longer make metal cassettes. I think the type ones might still be available, but a lot of that is kind of new old stock and they're very expensive to get a hold of. They still do make tape players, but things like, uh, as a, for example, Dolby, uh, licensing their, uh, technology for cassettes. I think it was in 2014, somewhere around then. So a new tape player, a brand new one's not going to have that kind of capability. And the other thing of it is, is there's still, from what I can tell, only one company that makes the tech mechanism or the uh, tape mechanisms. So whatever you get is probably going to have that mechanism and the mechanism while reliable isn't very good. So, you know, if you really want a good tape deck, you almost have to be able to find an older one. And if you do get an older one, you're going to need to be prepared to work on it because things like belts perish and other stuff that will, you know, cause them to stop working correctly. So, you know, but that's still out there. One of the newest formats, um, besides ones that we all know about, like Blu-ray and DVD and CD and all that kind of stuff, was an interesting one called slot music. Now, have either of you heard of that? No. No. So this is kind of an interesting one. It looks like it was only out for about two years. And what it actually is, is pre-recorded music on a micro SD card. So it came in a thing that looked like a CD case and you opened it and um, the micro SD cards from the ones I've uh, seen didn't have the artwork silk screened on them. Although I've been led to understand there was some version of that that did. And then you would buy it and put it in your MP3 player usually. And you had high quality MP3s, usually 320 kilobit files. So you had good sound quality from it. But um, of course, it's an SD card, which means you can copy everything off. And this was a big deal for a lot of different organizations that stop certain formats. Like there is a version of a digital audio cassette, but it was never really adopted because it could reproduce equal to, or in some cases better, a CD. And since you could record on it, you could record an exact copy. Now, today in 2024, not that, you know, I've ever done this or would promote it, but people just download the MP3 now. But in that era, they were very worried about piracy and you know, these type of things. There's a thing called mini disc, uh, which is another one that is a basically a small CD that looks almost like a floppy disc kind of. I remember and those. They, I was yeah, like, they what were do out we do for, with this thing? <laughs> yeah, and it, they weren't a big hit in the United States, mm-hmm. but they came out in Europe and some other places. They were a lot more adopted. In fact, I think they were on the market for over 15 years. 
So, you know, and you could get some pre-recorded stuff on it, but most of that was you had a blank disc and made your own, uh, you, you know, yep. your own thing. And some of the I cool stuff one. about that is it would be able to have track titles and you could put in it, meta information like that and have it display on the screen and all that. And in that era, that was a very new thing. CD text wasn't out yet. And, you know, you didn't have it with other things. So, yeah, that's basically so in answer to the question, though, what's still available, you can still get DVDs, you can still get CDs, uh, you can still get Blu-ray. and there are certainly people out there that still make vinyl. There is some new vinyl and for more promotional things. Um, I even saw a new production record that came out on a cylinder, like a headphone cylinder. that's just been released. Now, obviously this is a promotional item. They're not, you know, but it plays and it works uh, as you would expect it to, which on that format isn't great, but it does what it's supposed to do. <laughs> so yeah, there you are. All right. So, uh, in other news, is CD Projekt Red really being bought by Microsoft? So, when I saw this question come in, and then when I saw it come in again, I just about was ready to go get my, you know, black armband. So, in answer to this, I don't know why this rumor has been growing online, but no, this is not true. Um, in fact, a statement that I was able to get from CG Projekt Red on this. Uh, this is the company that makes games like Cyberpunk and The Witcher and a num number of others. And a lot of companies are being bought right now. They've been independent for almost 30 years. And their statement uh, in a very strong way said that there is no plan to change that. So um, that's pretty cool. And, you know, it's interesting because they've had their good things and their bad things. If you remember when Cyberpunk first came out, it was all not playable on certain platforms. And Others was difficult, but they did fix it. And it seems like, you know, and they didn't try to make everybody buy a new copy of it either. They just got it updated and finally it worked and now it works great. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're dealing with uh, looking at those type of things. But yeah, no, uh, um, uh, CD Projekt Red is not merging. At least that's their statement and anything else. However, they are talking about some new projects that they're working on. And we're going to be talking about that in future weeks at because I've been promised, a, well, not a leak, but maybe a little bit of a uh, uh, ability to see some of these things. Uh, one of them includes a sequel to Cyberpunk 2077 and a new Witcher game. Um, so we'll see when that actually happens. Now, Cyberpunk also, from the time it was talked about to when it was released, um, was a very long period. So that may or may not be soon. Seems to be a little bit of a um, matter of opinion on what that works down to. but. Yeah, so these things are coming out. So we'll keep you updated on all of that, maybe even get an interview with somebody from their development team this year and talk about some of these different type of things. So we are in 2024, and we usually like to talk about tech trends in January. And we've got a little time left here, so I figured we'll just kind of dive into it a touch here, but we'll probably circle back to this later. But last year, we talked about a few things that actually did happen, but did not call the um, type of AI that's come out now, the uh, adaptive AI. That was something that happened a little bit after the fact, but there's some other things being talked about this year. One of them is a thing called a Jetson 1. And we've saw, seen some versions of this in the past, but it's actually supposed to come to market this year. It's an electric flying machine. It's a vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, which is kind of nice. I mean, stuff that takes the runway is so last century. Flying machines now should be vertical. <laughs> and uh, this one seems to be able to develop it. And there's some other uh, big players in this, including Honda, 
which is coming up with a product called the Moto Compacto. So we'll end up with a Honda uh, flying machine here at some point. Hopefully they put the cruise control back in a place I can reach it. So yeah, I can reach mine. Yes, true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Neuralink. All right. True cyborgs, at least on the consumer end. There's some rumors that these things already exist. But uh, Neuralink is something where they've been talking about this. This is Elon Musk's organization. So, Bill, I assume you're not going to pick this version. Mm-hmm. But these companies are actually starting to become a real thing. They've gotten permission for clinical trials. They are uh, announcing recruitment. So if you would like Elon Musk to put an implant in your head and would like to do it soon, you can apply on their website to be in the clinical trials. I think if I was to choose this, I would prefer a military-grade version of it that's been around for a little longer. But hey, you know, that's just me. So anyway, we're going to talk about this in a lot more detail, uh, not just Neuralink, but trends and technology for this year coming up in the next couple of weeks. And until then, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2013 to 2024 by User-Friendly Media Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and guests and not this radio station. Please check out userfriendly.show for airtimes and podcasts.